right, welcome back everybody to episode eight of the second season of the Building Lifelong Athletes podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Arnke. Thanks so much for stopping by, I really appreciate it. And today we're gonna talk all about how to interpret a lipid panel. So when you go to the doctor's office, you get a lipid panel or a cholesterol panel, you get you know some specific things. We're gonna talk about it today. We're gonna talk about what it means, what you should be looking for, and how to feel more comfortable with that test. So let's get going. Okay, so first things first, our standard lipid panel, there's like four main things that like pretty much every single lipid panel is gonna have. That's total cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, HDL cholesterol and triglycerides. And then some tests include things like a cholesterol to HDL ratio, like total cholesterol, HDL ratio, or maybe something called a non-HDL. But like in reality, total cholesterol, LDLC, HDLC, and triglycerides, that's like gonna be every single cholesterol test ever. So, and one thing to note here is this LDLC, and you know, we talk about HDLC, LDLC, what that means is cholesterol, right? So what it's measuring is actually the amount of cholesterol on these lipoproteins, so not the lipoproteins themselves. So we're not actually counting the lipoprotein particles, we're counting the amount of cholesterol on them. It's, it seems like it's not a big point, but it actually is kind of important. So just understanding we're not counting the actual particles. And for LDL, it's actually calculated and not physically counted. So that's another thing we'll talk about in the future, um, but just worth mentioning that that is gonna be calculated and not actually counted. And so if we're looking for some tests will include a direct LDL sometimes as well. Like I said, usually those are not standard, but direct LDL would be the sum of IDL, LDL. So like I said, it's getting more actually counting of the LDL. Um, and then also sometimes there are things that you'll see VLDLs on there as well. Obviously those are the VLDL um, cholesterol, usually the concentration of the cholesterol. But of note, it is worth mentioning that when they do calculate VLDL or LDL, those are calculated using triglyceride levels. And so that's why we do recommend it's best to get these done when fasting, right? So when you're fasting, there's pretty much no chylomicrons or cholesterol remnant particles in there. And so not gonna have as many VLDLs or IDLs floating around, kind of gives us a better input on things. And it can also throw off of our values. If your triglycerides are through the roof, it might not be as accurate. And so in addition, when we talked about non-HDL, like I said, that is becoming more and more common that is being shown on lipid panels that I've seen at least. And the goal for that, when we look at that, it's gonna be about you know 30 milligrams per deciliter higher than the LDL goal. So like obviously when we look at our LDL goal, usually it's around like 100 or less. And then so with a non-HDL, it'd be up a little bit by 30. So essentially we wanna be less than 130. So taking a step back, total cholesterol, HDL, LDL, triglycerides, those are the main things we're gonna look at here. And then we'll kind of dive in a little bit further. Okay, so starting with that total cholesterol, right? So when we think about total cholesterol, we talk about everything, right? So we're talking about HDL, LDL, VLDL, IDL, chylomicrons, LP little a, remnant cholesterol, all these things. So literally anything that has is carrying cholesterol, that's what we're counting for, right? And so on top of that, it is worth mentioning that it is not actually including triglycerides, right? So cholesterol is just the actual cholesterol that is being carried on lipoproteins, not necessarily triglycerides, which um, triglycerides essentially is, are the triacylglycerol concentration within all of the triglyceride trafficking lipoproteins. So essentially the cholesterol is counting all the cholesterol, whereas the triglyceride is like the triglyceride content inside of all those things too. So a little bit like confusing, but if you think about it, total cholesterol is just looking at the cholesterol and total triglycerides is looking at the triglycerides inside of those lipoproteins. And of note here, the total cholesterol is, like I said, the content of every lipoprotein in milligrams per deciliter of plasma. So essentially, once again, all the cholesterol on carrying all the lipoproteins. When we look at our LDLC, so the LDL is once again content, the cholesterol content of IDL and LDL. So not just LDL, but they include IDLs as well because there's so few of them. HDL, once again, the concentration, the amount of 
cholesterol on HDL particles. VLDL, same thing, what's being carried on the VLDLs. Remnants, what's being carried on the remnants. And then LP little a, this is the cholesterol content of the LDL particles that have the APO little a attached to it. So we've talked about LP little a and how you know it's pretty genetic and it can be an increased marker of cardiovascular disease, but it is also technically a component of the total cholesterol. And it's kind of semantics here though, because usually it's included with the LDL numbers and stuff. But like I said, once again, I just wanna show you that the, the cholesterol number is including all of the different things there. And so that is a whole lot, right? Really, man, like, holy cow, remnants, LP little a, like IDLs, Jordan, what are you talking about? Well, let's bring it, make it a little more practical here, right? And so now let's look at fasting considerations. So when someone's fasting and get a lipid panel, it kind of makes it a little more simplified. So this is what I recommend. You know, there are, you know, the guidelines say you don't need to be fasted because, you know, if that's a barrier from someone getting their cholesterol checked, then we want to eliminate that barrier. And like I said, for sure, having a non-fasting lipid panel is better than not getting one at all. And so like I said, you, you do what you can and that's okay. But when we are fasting, the calculus changes a little bit, right? The total cholesterol concentration and the calculation changes a little bit. So it's more like HDL plus LDL plus VLDL. And that's pretty much it, right? Once again, we know that if triglycerides are elevated, we can have some abnormalities. But what's happening is when we're fasting, essentially there aren't any remnants left or IDLs. And so that kind of takes them out of the equation. And also on, on top of this, the reason more simplified here and they don't have LP little a is because most people don't have a huge amount of LP little a. And so it kind of is excluded from the formula. Not really, not really that impactful for us. Also, it's worth mentioning that if your triglycerides are elevated to anywhere like 150, 200 or higher, then you know first things first, that could throw off our numbers a little bit. And also it's kind of indicating that there's a delay in the catabolism of ApoB lipoproteins. So right, the ApoB lipoproteins that have triglycerides, there's usually a delay in the catabolism if our triglycerides are that high. And then with that, we might have an elevated total cholesterol content. And like I said, it might not accurately reflect particle numbers. So, if triglycerides are greater than 100, then typically what we want to use is something called non-HDL would be a better marker than LDL. It just seems to be more accurate. However, if you know it's under 100, then non-HDL is essentially the LDL and they're kind of interchangeable. All right, the next concept I want to talk about is LDLP versus LDLC. LDLP is the LDL particle, whereas LDLC is the LDL concentration. It might seem not that big of a difference, but it actually is. Like I said, LDLC is a calculation. So it's kind of an estimate of the amount of cholesterol in the LDL particles. It doesn't count the particle number. So the reason we care so much about these is because these two numbers can be discordant. Discordant meaning one might be up, one might be down. You'd expect that if you had really, really high LDL cholesterol, your particle number would be high, but that's not always the case. Um, it typically is the case, but not always. And so if they're discordant, that's not accurately predicting risk, right? So let's say if LDLC or the total concentration is low, well, there's tons of small particles. We know that's bad specifically in insulin resistant states. So when people are insulin resistant, they commonly have really small LDL particles, but there's lots of them. And sometimes LDLC may not even be elevated. So in that situation, let's say our LDLC looks normal, right? But we have tons and tons of small LDL particles. Well, we know those are super atherogenic. That is not a low risk state. And so we're kind of being misled by our, our information that we're seeing there. And so on top of that, you know, LDLP, this is not standard on tests, right? This has to get special testing. And so it's not as you know important necessarily that you need to get an L, you know, LDLP, but I just want you to know that, understand that concept, they're not necessarily the same. And we'll kind of talk about the next marker that we kind of do that will be a proxy for that. And so I just hinted at, you know, LDL particle. Well, there is a proxy for that. And that's essentially our ApoB. ApoB is our ApoB 100, like apolipoprotein B100. And that's seen on things like VLDL, IDL, LDL, and LP little a, essentially, 
not HDL, and then also not Kyla Microns though, because Kyla Microns, if you remember way back, they have ApoB48, so it's different. But we look at ApoB100s on those VLDL, IDL, LDL, LP little a. And why do we care about it? Well, it's probably our best tool for correlating risk because it accounts for all the potentially atherogenic lipoproteins, like I said. But once again, it is about 85% LDL, so the majority is LDL. And so that's why before the LDL particle test is part of like a fancy panel, it usually is pretty expensive and not that easily obtained. Whereas an ApoB is a separate test, it's not part of the standard panel, but you can order it's pretty affordable and gives us a pretty good picture of you know all the atherogenic particles that are kind of floating around and at the end of the day chylomicrons vldls idls and remnants they have half-lives of like four to six hours so like they're kind of clear pretty quick whereas ldl is like two to three days so that's why like it pretty much is just the ldl accounting for apob and like I said, it's not a one-to-one -one at all by any means saying like the apob is not looking at ldl particles specifically but the majority of that number is ldl particles and we like the apob because it's telling us how many potentially atherogenic particles are floating around the bloodstream Okay, and so I'm talking about potentially atherogenic particles, right? So, well, what determines which lipoproteins get into the endothelium? That's a great question. The big three things are the particle concentration, the size, and endothelial integrity. So first things first, a size, from a size perspective, anything less than 70 nanometers can get into the endothelium. And LDL usually runs about 18 to 23 nanometers. So regardless if it's a big and fluffy one or a small dense one, they can get in. So that's the big thing. Um, and unless it's a huge, huge VD VLDL, it's gonna pretty much get in. And so the small particles like VLDL, LDL, and small IDL, and even remnants can get into the intima. On top of that, we always talk about concentration, right? Like if you have a ton and ton of particles, right? Just by general diffusion, you think there's gonna be a higher pressure on there to get into the endothelium. And so that, that accounts as well. And then obviously endothelial integrity, meaning if you have damage to the endothelium, the damage to that barrier cells of the artery, then it's easier for something to get in through. So this is really important. I just want like you to understand that because I know sometimes you'll see things online or hear something online that like, hey, I have the big fluffy LDL. And so that can't cause atherosclerosis. And that's like patently not true. It's definitely small enough to get into. Now the whole question behind, you know, is it more atherogenic? Is it not? It looks like it's probably not. But like the fact that they say like, I can't get it. It's like, that's, that's just not true because the size of it is small enough to get into. Now, whether it gets taken in by the endothelium the subendothelial space and all that stuff, that's another question, but there is enough, you know, it is small enough to get in regardless of, you know, what type of LDL you have. And so I'll kind of just talk about big fluffy versus small ones. I kind of want to show you what it looks like for someone who is like insulin resistant. There's kind of like a patient profile when you see someone who has um, insulin resistance, it's kind of classic for them. Typically they'll have a low HDL, elevated triglycerides, um, maybe some elevated uh, ratios where the total cholesterol and the or the triglycerides to HDL are, are elevated. Um, and then sometimes they may have a normal LDL, uh, but probably elevated non-HDL as well, which, you know, non-HDL includes other triglyceride containing compa compounds. But at the end of the day, what usually what happens is that we see this HDL is low, right? So HDL being low seems to be tightly correlated with APOB issues. And we especially see those insulin resistant patients. And so the question is like, well, okay, like what do I do for a low treatment of HDL? Well, not nothing really. You don't treat HDL it should really start your treatment should be like treating the ApoB particles, right? So when we see a low HDL, what I typically think is, hmm, is that person insulin resistant? Is there something going on metabolically that's not there? But, you know, we've seen lots and lots of trials where people have tried to target HDL and they've tried and tried, they've looked at it and they've tried to treat it and increase it and they would increase it and they, they have success doing that. It doesn't lead to any clinical outcome. So a low HDL is not saying, hey, we need to hit this specific number. There are goals that we're generally looking for in terms of, you know, greater than 40 for men, greater than 50 for females. But that being said, that's not like the number one goal of like your HDL is normal, but your ApoB is through the roof, like we still want to take care and manage that ApoB particles. And the same thing, likewise, if your HDL is super low, we're not going to say we need to get HDL. We want to make sure we're managing you kind of holistically and making sure that ApoB and, you know, the LDL is kind of managed as well. All right, so now we're gonna walk you through how to look at a lipid profile. So you'll see seven things listed here, and these are just kind of a list of seven things. This is not necessarily 
how you have to look at them. These are just the general idea of what we're looking for. Um, I would say the first and second step are kind of, you know, are one and two for, that's, that's pretty accurate where they are location. But after that, there's a bunch of different things listed there just kind of for completeness. But I'll kind of walk you through what we're looking for with these numbers and I'll kind of break it down in the next slide for like how I kind of look at it. So first things first, so looking at triglycerides, we do care about that. So if your triglycerides are over 500, it's pretty much a do not pass go. We need to get that lowered. Next it's not because like you're at an imminent risk for a cardiovascular disease or a heart attack or anything like that, but actually it really increases your risk for pancreatitis. And if anyone's ever seen someone who's had pancreatitis or had it yourself, you know, it is not a good time. It does not look fun at all. And so if triglycerides are over 500, that's a high risk for getting pancreatitis. And so our first step is like, oh shoot, we need to get that lowered. And so that's like our main step is like, get it under 500. So if you look at triglycerides though, and it's less than 500, then we can kind of go on to the next steps there. And then I'd say the next step we're gonna look at is, you know, looking at our LDLC or our non-HDL or APOB if we have it ideally, and kind of looking there. Like I said, for LDLC, based on the ACCHA guideline, this is what most people use is LDL, just cause it's like I said, the most affordable and part of the standard panel. And if it's over 190, that's another one we say, ooh, probably wanna start a medication or at least really, really, really work on getting that lower. Um, but looking at LDL, once again, we're gonna look at those numbers and say, hey, you know, talk with the patient, understand the risk and stuff. But if it's not over 190, then we can kind of talk about other markers to kind of help clarify our risk as well. And so, like I said, in that situation, looking at, you know, LDL, we can also look at non-HDL. And once again, the non-HDLs are total cholesterol minus HDL. And it can be really useful if our triglycerides are elevated, right? So if in step one, triglycerides are elevated above 150, 200, you know, anywhere in there, then calculate non-HDL might be more useful. And obviously if we have the APOB number, that can be helpful as well. But first step, triglyceride. Second step, some sort of marker, LDL, non-HDL, or APOB is really helpful. And then third, we're usually looking at the HDL. So HDL, we wanna make sure that, you know, if it's less than 40 for males or less than 50 for female, it kind of like gets us concerned. Once again, like I talked about, it's not like I'm driving treatment off of this. Like we need to get your HDL up. Instead for me, it's more of like a marker, right? Of general metabolic health. I kind of think like, oh, is there insulin resistance going on? Is there something happening when our HDL is low? And so that's more of a, like just a area of concern, just kind of look at it and say, hey, you know, like remember that profile we talked about, the insulin resistant person, high triglycerides, low HDL, just kind of once again, painting that picture. And then once we have that, that's honestly enough for the vast, vast, vast majority of people in terms of, you know, look at all the guidelines. That's what they talk about. They talk about LDL numbers, maybe APOB. You know, we could talk about LP little a in a little bit, but like we look at triglycerides, look at our LDL, non-HDL or APOB. And then we look at our H, like our HDL, that kind of gives us like the general risk. And then we have all the other things we can do. So like, you know, looking at ratio. So obviously triglyceride, you know, total cholesterol to HDL ratio, anything greater than four is an issue. Also look at a triglyceride HDL ratio, which if it's greater than 3.8 women, four in males, that can be potentially concerning. Um, but once again, like, I don't know. And there's also like an APOB to APOA. That we are not going to get a standard lipid panel. So I don't really care about that one too much, but I'm just including that for completeness that some people will talk about it. But once again, like we want to keep it more simple and more practical, right? Like I don't want to, I don't want you to spend thousands of dollars on cardiovascular lipid testing because I don't think it's necessary. If you look at like the vast, vast majority of the data and, and out there, the recommendations, like you just need a simple lab test. And if you want to increase it a little bit with APOB and it'll be a little late, that I think that's reasonable as well. But like you got a standard lipid panel, it's definitely not worthless. Like some people will be like, it's worthless. It's it's definitely not because that's what all the data is on. Is it perfect? No, it's not. No lab test is ever perfect, but we can get the vast majority of that done here. So I'm going to kind of talk about like my process behind this. All right. So let's put it all together right now. So we kind of talked about stuff here. Here are the nuts and bolts of it. All this is going to depend on your personal risk, though, right? So when we have a conversation, a physician and patient, you know, they're going to have a conversation. They're going to come up with a plan together. This is never just advice from some person saying, hey, this is what you need to do. This is always a joint decision, right? So, and then on top of that, 
we should work through it systematically. So when we look at these, we want to make sure we're kind of having a checklist because when you go through things systematically, you don't miss things. And, you know, I think that's really important. So like I said, first things first, we're looking at checklist rides. If it's over 500, we should probably act on that, get you down so you don't have pancreatitis. And then once that's out of the clear, right, then we look at LDL or non-HDL or ApoB. And once again, if triglycerides are elevated, probably looking more at that non-HDL or ApoB number, whereas if triglycerides are really low, LDL will probably be pretty accurate. But once again, if I think I had to pick one here, I'd pick ApoB just because it's a actual, you know, we're actually counting the particles there. But hey, if we don't have that or can't afford that, then we can use a non-HDL or LDL and that's okay too. And after you look at those numbers, then we look at the HDL, right? We're just looking generally for the HDL kind of, is it low? not for treatment, just understanding. And then after that, we have ratios. We have all the fun little stuff that we can do there. Um, you know, there's ratios we can look at. And like I said, people put more weight into those than other things. And that's okay. They might be helpful. But for all intents and purposes, if you have the first three things I talked about, that's generally going to take you pretty far. And then on top of that, I did want to mention that, you know, goal-wise, you know, we're looking at our LDL or or non-HDL. An LDL goal, if you've already had a heart attack or a stroke or something like that, we want to be under 70. So otherwise they recommend, you know, around 100, less than 100 is ideal. You know, recommendations will honestly say like less than 130, but I think for most people, it's probably less than 100. But just want to like point out that like, if you've had an issue before, we want the LDL super low. If you have not, we still want it relatively low, you know, less than 130 or 100. So putting it all together, like I said, when I get a lipid panel, it's just a tool to help me understand your risk, right? It's not everything. I'm gonna look at this lipid panel, but I'll also order labs looking at your blood sugar and your electrolytes. And I'll look at your general standard screening things and kind of put everything together to paint a picture of, you know, what does your risk really look like? Because obviously one thing doesn't, tell, you know, everything. If you have, you know, maybe an LDL of like 600, like, okay, like that's probably something we need to work on when you talk about it. But obviously everything's going to be nuanced and we're going to have, you know, this multiple pieces of information that are going to be put together. And so there are guidelines like I talked about that, you know, have blanketed statements, but everyone is individualized, right? And if you think about it, you know, what works for you might not work for someone else. And you kind of have to think about each individual person and kind of work together. And at the end of the day, it's really about having the conversation between the physician and the patient, right? So it doesn't make any sense if the doctor just says, Hey, do this. Like, well, okay. If there's no buy-in, it's not going to, it's not going to matter. And at the end of the day, also, if someone's kind of driving and saying, Hey, the patient's saying, Hey, I want to do this. And there's no medical reason to do that. You know, that's not great as well. So we're really working together as a team. And like I said, I always treat patients just like that. They're patients and they're not numbers, right? It's very easy. You know, we, I think today in our social media world and our data driven world, we can say, Hey, you know, these numbers need to get down to a number. At the end of the day, like people are still people, right? And they have concerns and they have questions and they have things that they can do and things they can't do and things they won't do. And so you kind of have to work together to kind of figure out what's a plan that's going to be you know, sustainable and work for them, right? One thing that works for someone might not work for someone else. And so at the end of the day, you have to step back and say, hey, what can we get you to do that will be helpful for you? I think is the best case scenario, you know, reduces your risk, but also something that's actually practical and you can do. Like I said, so I hope you found this helpful. This is my approach to kind of understanding when I look at a lipid panel, what am I looking for? You know, where do we go from there? Like I said, I hope that this empowers you and that it was really helpful. Like I said, if you did like this or found it helpful, it would mean the world if you liked, commented, subscribed, or shared it with a friend. Honestly, sharing this with someone would be like the best way to get this out. And I'd really, really appreciate that. So thanks so much for giving your attention and spending time with me. It means the world to me. Now get off the computer, go live your life. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. Disclaimer, this podcast is for entertainment, education, and informational purposes only. The topics discussed should not solely be used to diagnose, treat, or prevent any condition. The information presented here was created with an evidence-based approach, but please keep in mind that science is always changing, and at the time of listening to this, there may be some new data that makes this information incomplete or inaccurate. Always seek the advice of your personal physician or qualified healthcare provider for questions regarding any medical condition.